0: I'm Joseph Dweck, and this is Human's Being. My guest this episode is Professor Donald Hoffman, a pioneering cognitive and visual scientist. Dr. Hoffman is a professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, with joint appointments in the Department of Philosophy, the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science, and the School of Computer Science. In his recent book, The Case Against Reality, Dr. Hoffman draws on 30 years of his own research, as well as evolutionary biology, game theory, and neuroscience, to suggest that we do not see the world as it truly is. Instead, our senses act as a virtual reality interface that represents the world to us in a way that human beings can manage. In this fascinating discussion, we discuss Dr. Hoffman's thoughts on what fundamental reality is really like. We learn about his childhood and early influences, and why he's dedicated his life to the study of consciousness. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you very much,
1: Joe. It's a great pleasure.
0: Human being is uh, not only about ideas, but about the people who have the ideas. And so uh, I'd really like to ask you if, if you could tell us a bit how you came to what you're doing today. What was your upbringing like? What brought you to a love of science? Uh, you know you were were you encouraged to study it? Was it something that you found on your own broad strokes if you would sure uh yes, I was encouraged by my
1: my parents. My father had a master's degree in chemistry and was working as an engineer uh, when I was very young and my mom had a bachelor's in biology. They very much appreciated science they um were also into um spirituality. And in their case, it was um, fundamentalist Christian spirituality. And my dad eventually switched out of uh, engineering and and became an assistant pastor and then a a pastor of his own small church. So I I got uh, inputs from both sides. I was encouraged to, my dad was, you know, had a master's in chemistry. And so he had me memorize the periodic table of elements when I was (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, ten or eleven years old. He gave me a dollar for memorizing the periodic table. Oh wow! Um, so, so there was some encouragement there. My mom, when she was around thirty, she took some programming classes and became a first-rate programmer. She beat all the young guys in the class, even though she was the, the oldest lady in the whole room. She was the star of the class, and so she encouraged me to learn programming, which I did. And and so I had this very broad, two-way kind of education with science on one side. And uh, sort of fundamentalist Christianity on the other, and so so I was faced because there I could see contradictions be, between the two, some some deep contradictions between the two, and and so that that sort of shaped me quite a bit. And as a teenager, my late teens, I, I began to just wonder if I could start to ask precisely questions like, um, are we just machines, and could I actually? use you know scientific methods to try to get an answer to that kind of question. And so, so, yeah, by the time I was in my late teens, I was really quite interested in the relationship between science and spirituality. I was aware of the contradictions, and I, I was really interested in looking for a precise way to try to answer a precise question, which to me was, are we just machines or not? And if we're not, can I say exactly what more than machines
0: are we? So the, the question about being machine sounds like it was your, your first question that you really wanted to, to explore, which I want to hear about. But I'm listening to you describe your upbringing and you're talking about, you know, on the one hand, fundamentalist Christianity and uh, science in the same household. So I imagine the contradictions were, must have been manifest in the household. What was it like growing up with those two elements converging or the confluence of that? In, well, in your it, house, it was quite interesting because my
1: dad, to the very end of his life, still thought the Earth was only six thousand years old. He knew the science, and he disbelieved part of it. And I, in, in talking with him, I um, was astonished at his. You know, he was a, a smart, smart man, and uh, thought about things very, very carefully. But uh, it really began to show to me that there was more than just rationality going on here that um, you know there were irrational things that were influencing what people believed. And so that was also a big aspect of, of you know my upbringing was to come face to face with my dad who, who I loved and, and who did a great job raising me, these beliefs that just couldn't be squared with the, the broad science um, in any way. And seeing how he would try to rationalize them, so it was very it was, it was quite interesting to me, but of course, you know, as a teenager, you know I, I knew that there was a lot for me to to learn on my own, and before I could answer these questions in a way that was satisfactory to me, I had to learn a lot more. So you know I went to um, undergraduate and then graduate school, um, partly motivated to get the kind of training I would need to answer these questions.
0: Wow. Were there complementary elements? Were there elements of the the spiritual or religious um, aspects of growing up that were helpful or were influenced you in, in in any way that that are significant? Well, I certainly was exposed to
1: the the ideas of Christianity quite thoroughly, so I really understand that that the book, you know, the Bible, mm-hmm. from cover to cover. Studied it for for many many years. I understand firsthand the mentality um, mm. of believing that, and the edginess that comes with trying to square that with scientific ideas and what what you know scientific experiments show. And what what I observed was there was
0: often a compartmentalization. I suppose that would be necessary in order to be able to kind of reconcile the two, or at least accommodate both. Right, right, because, you know,
1: from the point of view of their faith, there were certain things that you weren't allowed to question. One of the interesting points about Christianity is that um, your status of, uh, you know, whether you're going to hell or heaven (laughs) depends on what you believe. Right. And and so beliefs are not something that you're free to um, just... Juggle around and play with, and try different things out. Right there's all sorts of consequences for not believing. And so, so what I what I noticed was that there was this constraint on just free exploration of ideas. And I, I remember talking with a pastor in my late teens, um, the head pastor of the church, and I had an intellectual question. I think probably about the consciousness and this relationship to, uh, to the body and, and life after death something along those lines. And, and his response to me was, you know, Don, uh, don't worry about these things, just believe. And I knew that that wasn't right. You know, I, you know, I didn't have any undergraduate education yet, but, but somehow that just struck me, um, and, and stuck in my mind. And it wasn't merely, um, you know, being a rebellious teenager, because I really wasn't that rebellious. I was pretty much going along with the, you know, the program, um, but I had intellectual questions, I, and, you know, I didn't know how I was going to resolve them. I, I, I presumed that I was going to find out that we weren't machines, and that uh, I could substantiate a lot of what they were saying. But I, I wanted to do it rigorously. So being discouraged from rational inquiry seemed, even as a teenager, seemed wrong. But you know, you, you can't be that secure. At least I, I couldn't feel that secure. Um, you know, because these are senior people, they're older than me, they have degrees I don't have, so maybe they're right and I'm wrong.
0: <laughs> so it sounds like, even as a young man, y- your search for the truth... Or for what was the greater approximation of the truth was tempered also by your, your sense of, well, I don't have their degrees. I'm not a hundred percent sure that, you know, I'm, I'm aware of what they're aware of. So I have to, I, it's almost as though I'll, I'll use my working definition and continue my exploration, which is the underpinnings it sounds like of a scientist. (laughs) So you, you know, you take this mindset and you know, you use the word rigor. And would you say that that was something that was within you from a very early time in your life? You know, my dad did have me memorize the periodic table, and he
1: was interested in basic science ideas. And then when I started programming, so when you start programming, you begin to realize that um, complete rigor and precision is absolutely necessary. If you get a semicolon in the wrong place, the whole thing doesn't work. And so you get a new appreciation for. You're either precisely right or you're wrong. (laughs) And so I think programming really helped. I hadn't yet really done any experiments in a scientific setting. So I didn't understand about rigor in that sense. And my mathematical training was not exceptional. I'd taken, you know, the standard geometry and trigonometry and um, a little bit of calculus, I I think. But my education, I think, was just so so. It wasn't a, a great education, frankly. I think the thing that really got me thinking that way, though, was the programming. But you know, it was so impressive that the thing crashed if if it wasn't perfect, and it worked if it was perfect. And so that I think planted a flag in my mind about doing things precisely to get to get an interesting answer.
0: Yeah, well, I for one am very grateful for your rigor <laughs> because what has come out from it is this phenomenal. Theory around the nature of reality. I think the first time that I heard your thought was on a podcast that you did with Sam Harris. And I just thought, my goodness, I have to read this. I have to hear what it is that this is all about. And so I'm really excited to, to hear from you about how it is that you understand the nature of reality. As I understand it, what, what you're saying, Professor Hoffman is that. Reality as we experience it is not what it actually is, and that what we are experiencing is essentially like a user interface. The constructs of our physical world represent a reality that essentially lies behind it, for lack of a better term, and we are interacting using this elaborate interface. But reality as it is, in its objective sense, is not at all. What it is that we experience, manipulate, and interact with. Is that on the right track? That's right, on the right track. So, the very language of our
1: perceptions of space and time, of objects that have colors and shapes and motions and smells and so forth, that entire language uh, of, of the perceptual worlds that we live in all the time is the wrong language to describe objective reality. So, it's not that. You know, we maybe get the shapes of objects a little bit wrong, or the distances off, or the colors aren't quite right. It, it's rather that there is no true description of objective reality at all in that language. So it's a, a good analogy is if you're you're playing a virtual reality game, like say a, a virtual reality version of Grand Theft Auto, what you see in the game are the steering wheel and the you know, red Ferrari and the dashboard of your car and so forth; those are all perfectly fine um, perceptions to have of the game, and they let you play the game. But if you think that that's the whole reality, you're you're deeply mistaken. Because in that metaphor, the circuits and software, the voltages and magnetic fields in some supercomputer that you don't see is the reality behind the virtual reality that you're experiencing. So the idea, um, the metaphor, I think, that really helps bring this idea. Into people's minds, and especially for the younger generation that spends a lot of time in, in, uh, you know, multiplayer, uh, video games and even VR multiplayer games is that space time and everything that we perceive in space time is just our headset. It's a virtual reality that, um, allows us to act in ways that keep us alive long enough to reproduce. Um, but it's not at all like the, deeper reality in some sense you might say well what do you mean by the word reality in in some sense of course if i have a headache that's it's real and if i experience the color green i'm having a real experience so we can use the word real in that sense but if we're saying that's the final nature of of objective reality then then no And, and i should say i should bracket all of this by by saying um of course i don't know the truth of course as a scientist I admit right up front that um, everything that I think and everything that I believe could be wrong. I mean, just, we have to be open to being wrong on every point. But what we do then is we use the best scientific theories that we have so far. For example, evolution by natural selection, quantum field theory, and Einstein's theory of gravity. Those are like the three big pillars of modern science. Or Lots of other theories, but those are the, like the foundational theories. And what we try to do is to say, what do those theories entail? Can we ask a question like, do we see reality as it is of our theories and see what those theories say? Again, the theories themselves may be wrong, but as a scientist, I should do no less than ask the best scientific theories these hard questions and see what they say because there's nothing better that we can do right now. Well, there are best working definitions. Exactly. That's the best tool we have. Right but they are working definitions.
0: There are a few places that I'd love to go in in what it is that you're saying. I'm just going to you know, bracket or bring into parentheses one point that you're saying, which maybe we'll get back to, and that is just the concept alone, that if we are genuinely sensitive to the nature of reality, whether we're talking about it in capital R terms or lowercase r terms, which, which we'll develop, The best way to do that is to recognize that we are constantly approximating that reality and using a working definition of that reality that can change. Yes. The blockages uh, to that or the deterrence to that sounds like it's dogma in which – you know uh don't confuse me with the facts I've made up my mind, and you know this is how this is how uh, I, I'm going to live and you know being a rabbi in in a religious community or in, in a religious mindset, that's something that we have to bump up against often. perhaps part of what it is that I find so uh, enthralling in your thought is that you have this line that you run through everything that you say, so as much as your theory it sounds so uh, plausible and well founded you constantly remind us that this is a working theory and that you might be wrong about it but all the math so far seems to support what it is that i'm saying and that resonates so much with me because uh, you know in judaism there is a strong tradition of question and that nobody ever died from a question. <laughs> and we prefer questions that can't be answered to answers that can't be questioned. We will yes. always prefer uh, living in question because what we're, our ultimate desire is to figure out, well, what is actually going on in our world and in our lives? And we believe, at least on a religious sense, that if we can get closer to that, we are connecting to the source of what that is, which is what we would call God. That, I think, is an important an important line in all of this. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you then that, you know, the analogy that you give is, is a helpful one. I think, you know, at the beginning of uh, your book, the case against reality, you give just a, uh, an example of a file on a desktop that that file on that desktop obviously is not the file and that it's a representation of code, uh, but the file helps me to manipulate That icon actually helps me to manipulate, and the user interface of my desktop helps me to manipulate the code in ways that I want. And you write this phenomenal line in the book in which you say, just because things are not to be taken literally does not mean that they are not to be taken seriously. So even though that's not a literal file, it's not something you want to drag into the to the trash (laughs) and delete, because you won't have access to it in the way that you you do now. That's exactly right. And the reason that that's an important issue is because
1: a natural objection that people would have when they hear the idea that, you know, space and time and physical objects are just a virtual reality, they're not the ultimate reality. They laugh and say, well, look, okay, if you really think that, why don't you step in front of that car on the freeway? And after it kills you and, and that silly theory, you'll know that the car is real. And it's not just a virtual reality. And and the idea is well, certainly the case that I need to take the car seriously, but taking things seriously does not entail that we have to take them literally. And as you said, you, if you have an icon on your desktop that's blue and rectangular for a book that you're writing, it doesn't mean that the book, the file in the computer, is blue and rectangular. So, but we take the icon seriously. You don't want to drag that icon to the trash can because you could lose years of work on your book. So, on our desktop computers, we we see very easily that. Yeah, we have to take things seriously. Don't mess with that icon. You, you could lose your work. But you don't take it literally. No one be, would be silly enough to think that the the book itself in the computer is blue or rectangular. And so that's this the same kind of metaphor that, that I suggest that we think about trains and cars and rocks and things that, that can hurt you. Um, we should take them very, very seriously. But that doesn't um, logically entitle us to take them literally, and from an evolutionary point of view, uh, again, now I'm bracketing, I'm saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk within the framework of evolutionary theory. It's a deeper question whether that framework is right or not, but, but, but it's the best framework I have right now, so I'll, I'll use it. And in that framework, the idea would be that um, evolution shaped our sensory systems to be adapt- guides to adaptive behavior. And so it's a technical question. Is the best guide for adaptive behavior, a sensory system that shows you the truth? And it turns out the answer is no. It's a theorem of, the, of evolution of the natural selection that the probability is zero, literally zero, that natural selection would shape the sensory system of any creature to show you any true structures about objective reality, whatever
0: objective reality might be. You're saying that Evolution or natural selection never wants to allow for a you know, for the development of, of an entity or an organism to be able to see reality as it is. Capital R reality as it is, it isn't viable. It's much better to create uh, situations in which they can interact with reality. Uh, but not to see it as it is. And I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying it's z- zero guarantee or zero uh, possibility that there's going to be survival in such a situation. Right. So, and, and of course, when you said want, we we use the word want. And right. I'm borrowing that term. Quotes. Right. There's right, no right. wanting it.
1: Yeah. Right. But 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 yeah. You know, j- just bracketing that, just because people might be misunderstanding it. If you just think about evolution as a mechanistic, mm-hmm. in the manner that evolution works, it will not select. Exactly right it it will it, it well, the probability is precisely zero that wow. any of the structure that we see, like I'm looking around a room right now and I see the shapes of objects, so they have a certain structure, like the, the roundness of a ball, the distance of something from me um all that structure, the probability is zero that any of the structure that I perceive Um, is a reflection of the structures, whatever they might be, in objective reality. Like the color of your steering wheel in the virtual reality game, and the shape of the steering wheel, and, and the shape of your dashboard, has nothing to do with the actual shapes or colors of circuits and software and voltages in the supercomputer. They're just completely separate things.
0: Right. The implications of that, though, are that we are not wired for truth. We are wired for survival and that is not necessarily one and the same which means or it seemed to mean that to get to the truth i really have to struggle to deal with the fact that i am not necessarily wired accordingly right well so
1: so that then takes us to another level of this which is really quite fascinating which is when i said that evolution may not be the final story i, I really mean that there there could be a much deeper framework mm-hm in which space and time are not fundamental. See, the way m- most of my colleagues think about evolution is that space-time is fundamental, and evolution is the you know, full name of the game for biology, for, you know, at least for speciation. Yeah. Um, but if there's a deeper framework,
0: if space and time is just a headset... I mean, you're saying that space-time is part of the, the, the virtual... Exactly. It's not fundamental. Is not
1: fundamental. It, uh, so think about space time as just the headset itself, right? So you're, you're wearing space time is our headset. It's the, it is the framework of the virtual reality. What could be beyond space time? And so I'm playing with the idea that consciousness, again, a mathematically, scientifically precise theory of consciousness and its dynamics. Is what's going on outside of space-time. And and this now gets back to the, the question you were raising. It's possible that in this deeper framework in which consciousness is fundamental, maybe that framework allows for true experience and true perceptions of that reality. You know, and again, I'm fallible. This is, you know, I could be deeply wrong, but at least it's a precise proposition that there's a mathematical model of consciousness of a, a network of interacting consciousness, like a vast social network, and there, I'm not saying, I, I myself am not positing that we have complete access to, you know, infinite truth um, there, but it may not be as bad as what I have from evolution of natural selection, which says the probability zero that you get any truths, right? So, the evolutionary theory says zero possibility of truths. So, I'm, looking for a theory outside of space-time that gives us some possibility for some true perceptions. And and we'll see how
0: how it works. So a question on that. If evolution is uh, emphatically uh, gearing us away from truth, why is it valuable for us? Why are you, professor, looking behind the curtain, as it were? Why are we not wary about the fact that we're not we're not set up for this. And yet, you know, so much of what it is that you're looking at is to say, well, I want to see it anyway. Is there a problem with that? Is there danger to that? Why is that something that you're pursuing if we recognize evolution almost uh, you know, hell bent against it, again, borrowing the terms well,
1: I I certainly would agree that um there is risk in understanding what's outside of our headset because as soon as we have new fundamental understandings about the nature of reality um, it almost immediately within a few decades or less opens up remarkable new technologies that would seem inconceivable before they would seem like miracles so for Millennia we knew about magnetic rocks that, that made iron filings move around, and we knew about you know static electricity and we could get shocks. But when Michael Faraday and others really finally did the careful experiments, and then James Clerk Maxwell looked at the results and said, Hey, I can write down some equations, and wrote down equations, and, and we finally really deeply understood what was going on, that opened up um, what, we're, what you and I are doing right now—you know, I'm in California, you're in England—we're talking and hearing each other almost immediately because of you know, the equations that Maxwell wrote down and the technology that it gave rise to. And so, yes, as if we get to the point where we can actually model reality outside of space and time, and then model precisely how that deeper reality projects into space-time and looks like people and objects and colors and so forth, once we understand that, we can reverse-engineer our headset mm. and we can play with it. It's, it's very much the the idea would be very much like, suppose that there's someone who is a wizard at, say, Grand Theft Auto, and we're just all astonished at what this person can do and, and winning all the, the races and whatever they, you know, whatever they do. But they're stuck in the headset. Now imagine someone who is the software engineer who actually wrote the program or knows how the program works. That person could take all the gas out of the tank of the wizard's car, or give them a flat tire, or change the dimensions of the road, or all, all of a sudden throw up a, you know a bridge in front of them. So, in other words, being a wizard inside the game, which is what science is right now. Science has been a study of our headset. All of our scientific theories. Have not explored reality as it is, we've been exploring our headset.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the tools of science um, that we've sharpened up over the last several centuries, I think my my guess is that they're more than adequate for taking the first steps uh beyond space-time headset into the deeper reality. And so we have the tools, we have the methodology, we just have to wake up to the fact that this has been a headset and and many scientists are starting to wake up many physicists are are starting to wake up to that space time isn't fundamental space time is doomed as they say Mm -hmm. so i agree with you that there is both positive and negative consequences that are possible right now the positive consequence of, of science is you and i are talking literally on other sides of the world no problem that's that's truly amazing it wouldn't be possible on the other hand, of course, we have atomic bombs and and um, you know all biological warfare. These are the other things that you that, that crop up when when you move forward with with deep scientific discoveries. The technology it can be good or bad. So I agree, the the possibilities are are remarkable, both uh, positive and negative. The only place where I would maybe differ with what you said is that I, I think that it's not a question about whether we're sort of violating what we should be doing evolutionarily. Because I actually don't think that the evolutionary framework is the final framework in which we should be thinking about ourselves. Right? I, I don't yet have a deeper scientific framework, so I use evolutionary theory because it's the best tool we have. But I don't want myself to be constrained in, in, for example, my moral judgments about, about humanity or, or technological judgments by the implications of evolutionary theory because I think there's a deeper theory. So I would say it's fine as you were suggesting for us to think about what the evolutionary implications might be for what we should be doing. But then we should also ask if there were a deeper framework would that change our um
0: our thoughts on that. Okay. I I think I hear what you're saying. You're saying that you have strong sense that there is a, a more fundamental um, structure and that we can we can recognize that that structure is there and that that also has moral implications and direction to our lives as we live these lives within the virtual reality that we're living them in. Exactly right. Exactly okay. right. Okay, I hear that. I hear that. You know, I, I have to tell you, Professor, I cannot help but, you know, listen to what it is that you're saying. I'm going to share with you, I don't know if you've ever heard this, there is a broad um discipline in judaism although it's not the only discipline but a broad ju- discipline in judaism that does not read uh the bible fundamentally it looks at the bible exactly as you uh as you say we should look at reality that just as just because things are not to be taken literally doesn't mean that they're not to be taken seriously right. and uh you are reminding me of the thinking of moses maimonides who was a 12th century spanish uh rabbi, he's recognized as one of the best we've had, you know, one of the best thinkers we've had. And he he wrote a book called The Guide to the Perplexed, in which he deals with a lot of the issues in the Bible that people have have problems with if they're looking at them in fundamentalist ways. And he talks about uh, the Garden of Eden, which I am now recognize that you're familiar with, Mm -hmm. and says that before eating of the tree in the Garden of Eden, the interface or the interactions were... Existential almost. There was just direct interface between conscious agents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that after the eating of the tree, there was this virtual reality that ensued essentially. But he continues with that almost throughout his writing because he recognizes consciousness as the only way for us to commune with God, which I'm not looking to get into into to depth in our conversation. But he looks at God ultimately as the ultimate consciousness, and he looks at, at human beings as conscious entities that are able to interact with the ultimate consciousness only through our consciousness, and that that's like everything. Um, so it was reminding me a lot when I was reading about, you know, that path of thought. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea.
1: It's fascinating to me, too, because as I um, start with my colleagues working on this theory of consciousness— um, uh, the, the the question you raised there is, for us, a technical and interesting question, and that is, you know, if we have, for example, a theory in which there's this vast network of interacting conscious agents, like, like the Twitterverse, right? There's you know, tens of millions of Twitter users, billions of tweets, it's a vast social network. Um, there is a point of view in which you say it's just such an overwhelming complexity that that it would be impossible for any one consciousness to ever fully understand and engage with all of that consciousness I mean that's one point of view that you could have is, is the point of view that I've been thinking about, and uh, from that point of view, then you need an interface, right a visualization tool that simplifies things, dumbs things down, gives you a simplified description as opposed to overwhelm you with the whole uh, complexity but you you do raise the interesting possibility there in the garden you even thing of thinking about consciousness in some sense. Not needing an interface at all, I'll have to think about that.
0: Well, it's interesting because it doesn't posit it as not needing an interface at all, but the okay. nature of the interface is a different level. There's something else. It's almost as though you know the way that that we can recognize the difference between one thought and another, even though it doesn't necessarily exist, as uh, you know discrete entities in the way that we tend to experience. Uh, discrete entities, but we can nonetheless speak about them as different and manifesting. So there may be a different level of, of how it is that conscious agents interact. But I wonder if you could give us a description as to what your theory proposes is the nature of objective reality, of what's behind this interface.
1: Right. So most of my colleagues in cognitive neuroscience are quite interested in how mind is related to matter, in particular how you know our cognitions, perceptions, you know, intelligence is related to brain activity and so forth. And they've all assumed that uh, the brain is fundamental, the physical world is fundamental, and somehow mental stuff, including our conscious experiences, and you know, by conscious experiences, we mean something very, very simple, like you know, smelling chocolate or having an itch or feeling sad. The the Just simple um, conscious experiences like that that I could imagine, you know, a mouse can um, smell cheese and have a sensory experience there. So I'm not talking about exalted states of consciousness and self-awareness and so forth. Just very, very simple things that I could imagine a, a mouse enjoys as well. The problems that we face are right there. There's a lot to say about it, but my brilliant colleagues have been trying to boot up consciousness from brain activity. And they—they're they're brilliant, they're good friends of mine, and they—they've utterly failed to be able to explain even one specific conscious experience. And we can talk about it if you want. But anyway, that their failure um, was part of what really triggered me to be thinking out of the box and to think maybe instead of starting with space and time in the brain and trying to boot up consciousness from that, maybe we should go the other way around. Let's take space and time as just our virtual reality as a headset. And the brain is just one of the icons in the headset. So the icon doesn't really do anything. It's it's just an icon. And let's have a model in which consciousness is fundamental. People have talked, of course, in this way about consciousness being fundamental for thousands of years uh, in spiritual traditions, but also, you know, like the the, the Greeks in their non religious um, intellectual discussions would have uh, ideas like this as well. Um, But what we haven't done is use what we've discovered in science, which is the power of writing down mathematically precise definitions of what we're talking about, and then looking at their implications. So that's what I decided I needed to do from first principles. Let's take consciousness, which is really complicated. There's all the sensory experiences, the wide range of emotions and feelings and sights and sounds and so forth. There's all sorts of aspects of it there's intelligence there's learning memory problem solving there's you know the notion of a self it it could seem overwhelming where do you begin to write down a mathematical model for something that complicated and fortunately we have some really good guides um in the in the sciences about what to do in a case like that and the guide that that i've been following is is um you know exemplified by alan turing
0: Mm. You know, he used to live just up the road, literally from me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you're just uh, wow. So wow. when you come, I'll show you where he used to live. <laughs> oh, I, I
1: would that would be a, a great pleasure. He's yeah. um he's a hero, um mm. truly truly amazing. And and so Turing was taking on the challenge of effectively writing down a simple definition of computation. Now, you know, when you think about computation, there's countless things that we can compute, right? There's uh, all sorts of different problems. count. You know, how do we get from a, a path through all, a bunch of cities in the shortest amount of time? That's a traveling salesman problem. How do I compute all the digits of pi? How do I uh, do an artificial intelligence um, system that can understand natural language? There's just thousands of computations. How could you give a theory of computation? And Turing figured out how to write down a trivial formalism. When I teach classes, I can t- show them the formalism in just a, a few minutes, and it is not, it's not that hard. And we call this formalism a Turing machine. And what he did was he found the bare bones essentials. And from that, you can then boot up by just playing with the formalism and looking at the, the, the implications of it. You can boot up everything and start to study computational complexity and so forth. So that was the guide for me when I was trying to think about consciousness. Is there some bare bones? description of consciousness that I could write down that was the minimum that would allow me then to boot up everything else as a consequence of it. And so we'll, we'll see if it works, but what what I wrote down, and by the way, I've got wonderful colleagues that are working with me, Chaitan Prakash and Manish Singh and Chris Fields and Robert Printner and a, a bunch of others, um, some graduate students um, who've worked with me, uh, Justin Mark, Brian Marion, and so forth. But the idea is we start with just uh, the notion of a conscious agent, and the conscious agent has essentially two aspects to it uh, a collection of possible conscious experiences that we modeled with the probability space, and the ability to act um, based on those conscious experiences in a way that affects the conscious experiences of other conscious agents. That's it. There's no mm-hmm. notion of memory. Learning, problem-solving, intelligence, self, none of that is
0: there. Right. Memory is a big thing. You know, I was thinking about that uh, yesterday as I was anticipating our conversation because, you know, it's one thing to talk about consciousness. But the idea of memory is a whole other level of experience that has so much to do with identity and sense of self and and experience, and what you're saying is, if I understand correctly, is that you're just talking about as fundamental reality are these conscious agents. Are it's not that they incorporate memory, or necessarily do they do they incorporate self awareness, or is there a self to even be spoken about, or is it just actions and experiences? just actions and experiences in the okay.
1: foundations of the theory
0: that's it okay okay so their interactions and I, forgive me if i'm getting ahead of you mm-hmm. but then what you're what you're suggesting is that the the interactions of these agents form greater complex complexities of yes. conscious agents that yes. allows for the consciousness to be uh, in some manner enhanced
1: exactly exactly so networks of conscious agents interacting, form new, more complex conscious agents that will then have as emergent um, properties like memory, learning, intelligence, problem-solving,
0: and even the self. So these will be emergent properties of conscious agents, but not fundamental to the agents themselves.
1: Exactly right. From, From this point of view, of course, now, this is just a scientific theory. Chances are I'm wrong, right? But right, right. Well, we
0: well, we've got that as the baseline. <laughs> we've got that <laughs> that's as the baseline. Right. We're that's playing right. now. We're we're yep, working yep. on this this model. So let's go exactly with it. right. Yeah.
1: that's right. So the reason why um, I take this model seriously is because it's um, a theorem of the framework that we've written down that it is computationally universal, and 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 what that means is that anything. That my colleagues and I could build, um, in terms of models of learning, memory, intelligence, problem-solving, and so forth, using traditional neural network theory, I can do that with conscious agent networks as well. So anything that can be done with neural networks can also be done, it's just a theorem, It, it can be done with conscious agent networks. So I know that I can simply retake all the work that's been done in neural networks reinterpret it in terms of interacting dynamical systems of conscious agents and just inherit all the all the good work that my colleagues have been doing so that that's one reason i I chose a foundation that was minimal but not so minimal that i wouldn't have computational universality so I, i got the minimal that would give me this computational universal property that means i can build everything else but now we do have to build it so now instead of assuming the self which makes it magic. See, everything that you assume in your scientific theories as a starting point is something you're not going to explain. Right. That's the magic. It's an axiom. You're, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's the axiom, but, but but to even make it harder, you know, to make it sound worse for a scientist, those are the magical starting points where explanation completely stops. So there's no theory of everything in science. We have the theory of everything if you grant me these certain magical assumptions up front. <laughs> so there's always a magic at the heart of every scientific theory that can't be dispelled um, and if you dispel it, you'll need deeper magic, you know, deeper assumptions that you use to explain. It the, 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 sounds uh, like girdle. It well, it does. Yes, mm-hmm. that, yes. But but it's actually the nature of explanation itself. It, there's always
0: um, you're going to need some base some base. Uh, uh, givens, right? right that right. you can't. Yeah. Okay.
1: So I chose what I figured was the the minimal properties of consciousness. Because I wanted to have as little magic as possible. so But the magic is pretty heavy. I mean, conscious experiences, I'm right. assuming they exist. Yep. And I'm assuming that um, choices can be made based on conscious experiences. But I'm not assuming a self. I'm not assuming any self-awareness. I'm not assuming intelligence, uh, learning, memory, problem-solving. But networks of conscious agents can be wired together, just like neural networks, like deep uh, deep learning neural networks and so forth can be wired together to you know do language understanding or to recognize faces and so forth the same thing can be done
0: with conscious agent networks so if i understand you correctly professor mm-hmm. what you're saying is that when you do have a situation in which the conscious agents have coalesced in a way that has created a more robust consciousness say the kind that we find in human beings that being that it's fundamental and that the human being, the brain, the whole of, you know, this entity that we would call a human being is a virtual element of an interface would mean that that if the virtual element in this interface goes away or, you know, you lose the avatar, as it were, it doesn't necessarily mean that the consciousness and memories – for that matter and self-awareness and so on necessarily goes away with the death of the avatar. Have I got you? Or is that, that, a, that too that's much of a
1: right. That's right. So um one way to think about it, uh, using the virtual reality metaphor is to say, suppose that you're with some friends at a virtual reality arcade and you're playing virtual volleyball and you all put on your headsets and body suits and find yourself immersed in, you know, a, a beach volleyball scene with the the sand and the net and the palm trees and, and you're you're playing uh you know vr volleyball with your friends and you know one of your friends tom says oh, excuse me for a minute i'm thirsty i need a drink he takes off his headset and bodysuit to go get a drink and his avatar just collapses motionless on the sand <laughs> right so, well for effectively with for the game he's dead but but he's not dead he just stepped out of the interface
0: right all the experiences of the game are still within him even though he stepped away with from the headset and all of that's the memories that's the point that's a very, very, very good point. Even though he,
1: he is no longer immersed in that VR game, he does remember it. That's, that's a yeah. very good point.
0: Right. That's fascinating. It's that, again, is straight out of something that Maimonides wrote about, you know, obviously in religious literature, they're going to be talking about the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And he basically says that we lose the Avatar. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm translating his 12th-century language into modern terms, and he says that the consciousness forever remains, and that is essentially what the afterlife is. And it sounds like, Professor, that you're saying, I'm doing the maths on this, and the maths, at least in terms of the theory that you have currently, is working out. Right. It it certainly... Seems to be
1: allowing that kind of thing to happen. I know I need, of course, to do a lot more work on it, but it it's certainly it, put it this way: from a physicalist framework, if our consciousness is is the product of brain activity, well, then when the brain dies, there's no chance for consciousness to survive. That's just—it's all over. But from this framework, in which consciousness is fundamental and the brain is just a an icon on my interface, then then it's absolutely Wide open that that consciousness would survive what we call death, but what what I'm really interested in now, from a scientific point of view, is to say what precisely does the theory suggest will survive? Is my notion of myself as a self going to survive? How many of my memories will survive? I'm, I'm very very interested. Consciousness itself clearly need not cease. That's why I was really interested in what you said. You know, there there could be a memory of what you saw in the interface in the game. That certainly seems quite plausible. Um, so even though you're not in the game, you would have the memory of the game, and maybe part of what's going on here is we learn from being in that game, and we move on to other games, and we learn from those games as well. So that would be, that, that's further than I've gone with the math, but it certainly seems a plausible direction to see to, and explore with the math.
0: Right. Well, I mean, if, you're, if we're talking about um, conscious agents essentially uh, acting and experiencing, and the interface being the mode through which those things occur, it would seem that the experiences would be retained. But, yeah, but you know, I hear that you haven't done the math on it yet. But, yeah, I hear that. I, I hear what you're saying.
1: Right. Yeah, the technical thing there is, you know, the issue about how consciousnesses combine to form new higher-level consciousnesses. Right. And does the mathematics allow for that to unravel as well? And that I haven't studied. So that's, that's really interesting. Well,
0: we're, I'm grabbing my popcorn. And I'm waiting (laughs) because it's it's just the most enthralling thought, I have to say. So we've gotten very good. At manipulating the user interface over the time that, 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 you know, conscious agents have been playing the game, let's say. Let's use the analogy, right? We're able to keep our lives in the game longer. We're able to address problems that manifest in the game in better ways than we've been able to. Yes. So you're talking about being able to tap into that and the technologies, you know, you, you touched on it a bit, the technologies that might come to us, or that might be open to us as a result of being able to see beyond the interface and to study it. I wonder if you could share a bit, what kind of things might we be able to do? I mean, I, I, I'm i sensing that it's like unfathomable. It's like beyond even you know what we could imagine. But but let's imagine for a minute, what kinds of things would we be able to do if we tap into the motherboard? Does it just change the whole parent? It sounds like it changes the entire paradigm. Of how we live. it's
1: a com- complete game changer, my guess is that the technologies that are going to be opened up um, are going to be at a completely different level than anything we've ever conceived of before that we could possibly be able to play with the very structure of space time itself, wow. so that you know we're, we're right now thinking about how we're going to get um, ion drive. Uh, rockets or other kinds of mode of rocketry to get us to the nearest stars which are you know light years away or to places that are millions of light years away or billions of light years away how are we going to do that going through space time you can only go at the speed of light that's the maximum you can go and then no massive object can ever go the speed of light so if, if we have to go through space time it's going to be i don't know how we're going to do it but if we can warp space time. If we're not stuck in the headset, and we can warp space time. There may be some new technologies that we can't even imagine wrapping our minds around right now that that would allow us to to move around. You know, the, the closest thing that you could think of in current ideas is like wormholes through space time, right? Where where you don't traverse through normal space time, but you find these little uh, shortcuts. Um, but there might be some even more profound things that that would that. We'd be able to do just like a programmer uh, playing with a virtual reality game of, you know, uh, Grand Theft Auto could change the dimensions of the roads and, and, and just change the whole geometry of, of, of the game as they wished. Um, so, would we have that kind of technology? It was not obvious um, when Faraday and others were playing with magnets and twitching frog legs with wires and so forth that um, that would allow you and me to talk instantaneously on other sides of the world that technology was not obvious Um, and yet here here we are doing what was not obvious at the time there are perhaps um apocryphal stories about how faraday or or um one of the early explorers was was you know maybe it was maxwell was was asked why is this important what good is it and and he said, no, don't worry, someday you will tax it. Uh, you know, at the time it looked like just a bunch of funny guys with too much time on their hands playing with magnets and wires and stuff like that, and then oh, go let them do it. Um, but our world is entirely transformed, and and so I think it's, it, it's going to take a while. I mean, it took a long time from Faraday's experiments to what we have today. I mean, it was more than a century of, of hard, hard work, and and working out the the implications and developing the theory further and further, so I, you know I don't see this happening right away but but as we get this theory of conscious agents if it if it seems on the right track, we get a mapping which is this is what I'm working on right now. I want to get a precise mathematically precise mapping from dynamics of conscious agents into space time that's precise enough for me to actually predict um, something really simple. The simplest thing I can think of is um uh, like gluon gluon scattering in in the large hadron collider um, it sounds exotic but one of the simplest aspects of space-time that we can get our hands on and so i want to go after the simplest thing can i get a mathematically precise mapping from conscious agent dynamics through um, a bunch of intermediate mathematical frameworks that the physicists have, have discovered outside of space-time which is a completely different fun topic which is the physicists are, are discovering structures outside of space-time i'm working to plug my theory of conscious agents into these structures that they found outside of space-time and then go all the way into space-time itself. Once I can pull that thread with my colleagues, and especially Chetan Prakash and others that I'm working with, then, then we can begin thinking about reverse engineering, the whole thing. And that's when technologies could arise.
0: Wow. I'm going to pop out of the issue at hand for a minute and speak to you in terms of your work and, and, experience as a professor and a scientist for a minute you know you're speaking about things that certainly border on the spiritual the um let's say it borders on the spiritual which you know as we mentioned at the beginning uh science and spirituality aren't exactly the best of friends you're right how how are you how is your experience in the scientific world with your colleagues I mean, forgive me for asking, but are there rolling eyes? Are Is there a heavy dose of criticism beyond the healthy scientific criticism? What is your experience holding this theory, Professor Hoffman, in the scientific world? Well,
1: I think that it gets the appropriate level of um, criticism in, in the sense that um, I'm making a bold claim and it's required and, and and appropriate for my colleagues to be skeptical and to ask hard questions and so forth. And I, I of course, I knew that going into this. Um, and so that's why around 2008, 2009, I decided that if I was going to go this direction, I really needed to see if evolution by natural selection um, could tell me anything about the relationship between perception and reality. It it, it seemed to me that I might be able to prove from that theory that the probability is zero, that we see reality as it is. And eventually, uh, you know, the work that we did uh, led to a theorem that was proven by my colleague, Chaitan Prakash, that that's the case. So what happens is, when I'm talking with my colleagues, I I don't talk about anything but the theorems. I say, these are the theorems. But those are your colleagues. That's right. So, I I have given lectures to uh, neuroscience groups, for example, in which I say to them that neurons don't exist when they're not perceived, and brain activity causes none of our behavior and none of our conscious experiences. And they don't usher me out of the room in straitjackets because— Well, that's good news. (laughs) Oh, no, no. No, they invite me to come talk because I have a theorem. That's the thing about science. If I were just saying this and I had no theorems, then, um, I would get no invitations except to the loony farm right. and, and I would, I would be, um, ostracized. But, but that's the thing about science. My colleagues are most of them, um, physicalists. They assume that space time is fundamental and that, you know, the behavior of particles, you know, quarks you know, and gluons is the fundamental, um, nature of reality and complicated dynamics of Particles leads to things that we see like neurons and brains, and then neurons and brains cause consciousness. So that that whole physicalist framework that space, time, and matter are fundamental, and life and consciousness are emergent outcomes, that's their framework. And, and you know, these are my good friends, they're brilliant, and and there's no reason for them not to take that point of view because it's been spectacularly successful for centuries that the reductionist physicalist framework is remarkably successful and and so it you know I, I don't blame them one bit the reason it's been successful is that's the right language and tools for understanding our headset and that's what they've been doing they thought they were studying reality but they've been studying our headset
0: they're studying the game
1: they're studying the game yeah and they're really been, good at that they're, <laughs> they're really, really good, <laughs> yeah. good at that and these yeah. are and by the way i, I I can't wait to get this work to a level where um, really smart colleagues start jumping in and working on it because these 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 some of these people are so smart. I, I can't tell you how smart they are because I'm not smart enough to know. And <laughs> as soon as they get into this, um, I'll just sit back and watch because it'll be, it'll go much faster than I could ever push it. But I'm trying to sort of like jumpstart the thing and then they can really drive off with it. So I, I know that when I'm interacting with, with my colleagues for good reason, I need to show them some real beef.
0: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So it sounds like the maths are, are so important here. Uh, they're essential without the math.
1: I've got nothing with the math. I've got their attention. It doesn't mean that they believe me, but the, you know, the ball is in their court. If they disagree, there's a theorem on the table. Where, what, what assumptions going into the theorem do you disagree with, and what's your new
0: theorem? So it's it's a different game. Wow, wow. So back into the into the issue at hand: conscious agents coalescing to form greater, robust conscious consciousness. Love, professor, it consumes us as human beings. It is central to so much of our lives it it torments us it elates us entire lives can be made or broken through it in your model in this model how do you see love what role is it playing in the in the system so i'll try to answer on two different levels
1: first i'll i'll just say what my colleagues in evolutionary theory would say Right, and then go to the deeper that you just asked about. And from from an evolutionary framework, love is an adaptation—the emotion of, you know, for example, sexual attraction and 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 you know, brotherly love and so forth. But but say, sexual attraction is um, in some sense um, an evolved adaptation that was designed to cause certain behaviors in us that lead to procreation and reproduction of genes and. We can try to make it uh, seem like more, but that's all it is. So that's one framework in thinking about it. It's sort of a deflationary um, framework. So that's that, that's one framework of it. But there is this deeper question that, that your question is, is prompting. And, and that is when we take consciousness as fundamental, <clears throat> first, what is consciousness up to? What is it about? If there's a dynamics of consciousness, why? And does love somehow which which seems to us to be far more than just sexual attraction, more than just the manipulation of genes getting themselves into the next generation. It feels to us like there might be something deeper to it. Can we make that precise? Can we somehow give a notion in this realm of consciousness of a role for love that could be very, very fundamental? And I've been thinking about that. And one possibility is that conscious agents, when they interact,
0: do form new conscious agents. When you say new conscious agents, what yes. do you mean? Are you simply saying that there's just a, it's it's a greater conglomerate? What what do you mean by new conscious agents? Well, so great question because you can write
1: down a formal interaction of two conscious agents in which they are merely a conglomerate. There's nothing really new. You you, you just sort of formally wrote down a pair of agents as one agent, but but. They're really just two separate agents. But, but then the mathematics allows to put in what we call interaction terms. And when you put in these interaction terms, you have something new that's well above and beyond um, the original two conscious agents.
0: And is that an emergent property? Yes. Okay.
1: And that's a brand new conscious agent.
0: Okay. And this could
1: be related to the notion that in quantum theory of entanglement, that, that you know, when things are entangled, something new um, and unified is is emerging. So in, in the question of love on that level? Well, so here's as far as I've gotten. The answer is I don't know. But I, there's only one idea that I've run across that seems deep enough to be a possible answer to the, the question of what is consciousness up to? And the idea is comes from Girdle. And, and it's this. Gödel has a theorem called the Gödel Incompleteness Theorem, and and without going into the nuts and bolts, what what it means is that there's no end to the exploration of mathematical structure. No matter how much mathematical structure you explore and can write down, you've just begun. And so it's, it's endless. And in a framework in which we take consciousness to be fundamental, and consciousness is all there is. In that framework, then, it would follow that the only thing that mathematical structure can be about is about the only thing that there is, which is consciousness. And so, that would mean that there's endless possibilities for varieties of conscious experiences and conscious exploration. And if that's the case, then maybe what consciousness is about is the never-ending, exploration of its own possibilities, which we have a theorem which says that exploration is never-ending. In principle, never-ending. So there's this boundless exploration of all the varieties of conscious experience. And what's really interesting is that Gödel's theorem, it's when you get systems that are self-referential, that are trying to describe themselves, that you get the Implications of girdle sermon. And what we see in implication with consciousness is that it's consciousness trying to understand itself, that self-referential aspect that again leads to this never-ending exploration. You can never ever fully understand all of your self. And perhaps love then would be a part of this as new conscious agents are formed, which are exploring new aspects of what the possibilities of consciousness are. That could be thought of as love that new mm-hmm. agents are being formed, they're working together, they're collaborating in this big adventure of self understanding and in mm-hmm. some sense you know even in in marriage right you 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 could think of it that way that you have two people they come together, and in a successful marriage you you spend a lifetime learning more about not just um the other person but even about yourself um uh, in your interaction with the person and
0: and the nature of the relationship between the two. That's right. That's right. Right. So, wow. That's, it's staggering. It's just in, in the best way. <laughs> it's staggering in the best way because I'm hearing what you're suggesting. And it sounds like that a reason can be in this framework that love is so central to us and so important for us. Because in order for consciousness to be able to discover its possibilities in its full array, It requires interaction and genuine connection. And when it's done in what we would call in our user interface love, it is a genuine um, synergy rather than an ersatz or artificial uh, interaction that kind of always holds something back. And so it allows for this synergy for consciousness to genuinely allow for further emergence, further complexity, and discovery. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, this framework does
1: suggest something that's much less deflationary than, than my take on the evolutionary view, which is, in some sense, um, love is the trick that gets us to procreate to get genes into the next generation. This, this suggests that there's a lot more to it, possibly, than that. that, that we're actually in the very act of, of marriage and, and, and also, you know, the deep friendships that we have with people, that something deep in terms of the exploration of consciousness and, and all of its potentials is going on and and something very profound is going on there. I should say that there is a difficult side as well, and that is that this kind of exploration means letting go of the known to go to something that you don't know, you have to let go of what you know, and that can be terrifying. And yeah. so, you know, in- And mystical, painful. And and painful, right. And and mystical traditions in which, you know, people meditate and so forth, and, and you're letting go of the known, you, you let go of all concepts, and you go into pure silence, um, it, it, it can be terrifying as well as exhilarating. And so there may be this dual aspect to this self- knowing of consciousness that it's exhilarating you're learning you're exploring but it's exploring like you know someone getting into a boat and and going to uh, across the ocean and not knowing if there be dragons right you know yes. who, who, who knows it's it's so there be dragons we, we at least we're afraid that there be dragons because we're going beyond the known and so dealing with that terror and being brave to continue to explore i think is another aspect of it uh, but i think you know the reward then becomes that you then get to inhabit new new continents that you didn't uh, have
0: before yeah well there's definitely a courage in it a yes. a wholeheartedness in it yes and um if we reflect the whole of of humanity's development has been born in that courage yes and that does suggest that this is an important part of us fundamentally and who we are wow professor it is so exciting and I am so grateful that you've taken the time to speak with me and discuss these ideas. And I cannot wait to hear where it goes. And I'm sure so many of our listeners will be really looking forward to to read and to see and to hear how it is that it moves forward. Wish you the greatest of success. Thank you so much. It's been a really great
1: pleasure to talk with you. And again, thank you for this very kind invitation to talk. This this dialogue across science and spirituality, I think, is, is wonderful and, and the way forward.
0: Well, I look forward to more of it, and uh, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Humans Being with me, Joseph Dweck. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out the links in the show notes for more information.